Worried you'll need to babysit your robot vacuum? Think again. Meet Eufy X10 Pro Omni Robot Vacuum with AI-powered navigation to recognize and avoid over 100 objects. It's the winner of five Best of CES awards. And Digital Trend says it boasts almost all the same features as robot vacuums that cost twice as much. Want to know more? Go to eufy.com. That's E-U-F-Y.com. And discover X10 Pro Omni, the best-in-class all-in-one robot vacuum for only $799. Boldly going where no science show has gone before. The Naked Scientists. Hello and welcome to this week's edition of The Naked Scientists with me, Chris Smith. This week, I'm naked down under, quite literally, and that's because I'm in Adelaide, South Australia. Adelaide's home to some of the world's best wineries, which I've spent a bit of time visiting probably a bit too much actually, to southern right whales, which I've been watching as they wallow their way along the beaches here, and also to a number of formidable academic institutes. And this week I'm off to meet some of the researchers who are helping to put Adelaide on the scientific map. The Naked Scientist podcast, powered by UK Fast, the UK's best hosting provider. On the web at ukfast.net. Mark Tester is Professor of Plant Sciences at the University of Adelaide's Waite campus, where he's building a new facility to root out what makes plants do what they do. You know the advances in genomics are roaring ahead. We can sequence genomes, we can manipulate genomes, we can do extraordinary things with molecular biology. What's starting to fall behind in science, especially in plant science at least, is the ability to measure the effects of those manipulations on the whole plant performance, the growth and how the plant works when it's fully grown. So what we need to be able to do is characterise the effects of those manipulations, the growth of the plants in controlled conditions in a high throughput and efficient manner. And that's the driving force behind this new construction we're going to describe. <laughs> well, it's at the seam. Is this the world's biggest greenhouse? It looks like. <laughs> it's not the world's biggest greenhouse, but it's the world's biggest greenhouse of this type. What we've got here isn't just a greenhouse. I mean, it's a very impressive greenhouse, but it's a greenhouse that's going to have a large portion of its floor area covered with conveyor belts and the plants will be moved automatically on the conveyors to imaging stations where we'll be using remote sensing technologies to monitor the growth and some aspects of the performance of the plants. Why is that helpful? Can't people just walk around and look at plants anyway? Why do you need that to do it? Yeah, of course we can go around and look at plants, but there's two things. Humans are quite slow and, in, and expensive, and the other thing is they're notoriously biased in their looking, in their observations, and not quantitative. So we're getting objective, quantitative measurements of the way the plants look. Also, with the technologies we're using, we're not just using visible light. We're peering into some of the hidden parts of the plant, what they're doing in the infrared spectrum, how they fluoresce when we irradiate them with ultraviolet radiation. So basically you've got a, an infrastructure here which means that you can grow plants under very strictly defined conditions, every plant's going to get the same conditions and it's going to get assessed in the same way. That's exactly right. So when we grow in here a population of 50,000 plants, which we could do for some of the smaller plants, we can have them being automatically measured non-destructively through time. So the fact that we're not having to kill the plants and weigh them is another very important feature. And this opens the door for a whole range of genetic studies. It's bringing more genetics into physiology, more physiology into genetics. And we bring those two fields together, plant science is going to really get a big kick. What sorts of questions will you be able to ask them? In what way will you be able to take plant sciences forward with this? Uh, we can ask questions in two ways. One is to get a gene that's identified and start to ask questions about what that does to the plant's performance um, in, a, in a quantitative and objective way. The other way, which I think is more powerful in many ways, is what's called a genetic approach, a forward genetic approach, where we can get plants that have got different properties and start to ask the questions, what gene is responsible for that difference? And we can have a plant that keeps growing well in a salty soil and another plant which dies or doesn't grow as well in the salty soil. What genes are responsible for those? So you're asking the plants the question, OK, you're tolerant, why are you tolerant? And the plants tell you the answer rather than trying to sit there and be smart and say, oh, I think it's that gene. <laughs> 
and waste your career doing that. Which will be bad. Is this the first of its kind in the world, then? Uh, this is the first of its kind in the world. Um, there are, there are, there's, there's one smaller version in Germany, um, and there's a couple of slightly different and smaller versions in the private sector, but uh, this is certainly the first to have so many wavelengths looking at the plants, and certainly in the scale and in the public sector. So any scientist in the world can come and use this and uh, benefit for their particular scientific question from this facility. What sort of floor area will you have? Uh, It's uh, 4,500 square metres of building and uh, there's over a kilometre of conveyor belts delivering the plants. So if we have a large plant like a wheat plant or a sugarcane plant or a little tree we can measure those sorts of plants because it's a very tall greenhouse. Um, we're able to measure something like 2,500 plants at any one time. If we're looking at little plants, we could measure 50,000 plants. And given, you know, in the Arabidopsis genome, a lot of plant genomes, there's 25,000, 30,000 genes, you can start to look at the effects of knocking out every gene in the genome all at the same time. I think that's quite powerful. What about the fact that you're going to have very large numbers of plants all together? How are you going to keep pests at bay and that kind of thing? Uh, that's a good question. Um, the, the, we have um, the air in every greenhouse room is, com- is completely separated from the air in every other room. And the, so we've actually spent $4 million just on the air conditioning for this building. A quarter of the cost of the building is on controlling the airflow. And um, one of the main reasons for that, besides defining the environment, is to minimise the pests. So every room has its own air control in and out, isolated, so that reduces the spread of the pests. We have, of course, a monitoring and spraying regime, which will be in place. We use biological control. And the other thing, um, because not only there are lots of plants here, but they're moving around on conveyors. That's dangerous. So we've got a little spray station. So as the plants come out from their imaging, they go through a little spray station and get a, get a shower to clean them up. And if there's a power cut? <laughs> We're generating our own power, <laughs> um, which actually saves a lot of CO2 emissions, surprisingly. The South Australia's got good gas, good gas supplies, and so we can pipe in the gas and generate our own electricity. We generate about 70% of our own electricity on site. Can you send the fumes from the generator through the greenhouse to get the plants to soak up the CO2? Uh, yes, you can. Um, uh, we, we, we can use the CO2 for, for controlling the CO2 levels in the greenhouse because, of course, studying the effects of climate change on plants is very important. So we do have a high CO2 capacity. We use the fumes also for... We extract the energy from the fumes before they leave the building uh, to heat water and heat air as necessary. So, yeah, it's great. It's called a tri-generation system. You get three bangs for one buck. What about water? Presumably you can collect all the water that runs off and put that in tanks, but there's going to be some thirsty plants here. Yes, uh, we're able to um, supply most of our own water supplies from the rain. We're storing a third of a million litres of rainwater, but inevitably we will um, need some mains water as well, unfortunately. We're recycling all our water... So 90% of the water is recycled, and I'm proud of that. And uh, the, the main problem isn't the plants. We've got enough water for the plants, pretty much. Uh, the main problem is the electricity-generating plant that we've got. That uses a lot of water. That uses a couple of million litres, and we can't service that. So that's going to have to use mains water, unfortunately. But uh, we're still trying to recycle as much of the steam as possible that, that's lost from that. More from Mark Tester later. And now to an old friend of mine who has the dubious honour, and I'm putting it like that for a reason, you'll find out why shortly, of being the discoverer of two new viruses, the human Boca viruses 2 and 3. But this is probably not something that she wants to talk about at a dinner party. Hi, I'm Jane Arthur and I work at the Institute of Medical and Veterinary Science in Adelaide and... um, I do studies on what causes gastroenteritis in kids. And so the kids that are coming to hospital, that the parents are sick of vomiting and pooping all over the house, and they bring them to hospital and they say, what's wrong with my child? And for many years, there's been a huge gap in our diagnostics. So there's some bacteria that we know about, there's rotavirus that we all know about, 
But when you actually look at the studies, about 60% of kids that are turning up at hospital aren't getting diagnosed. And so we decided what we would do is try and work out ways of um, getting more sensitive diagnostics and look for more viruses that were probably out there causing gastro. So in addition to bacteria, lots of people have heard of, say, E. coli or salmonella as bacterial causes of food poisoning. Viruses are big players too then? Um, yes, they are, and particularly the norovirus. That's the big one that's been around. Particularly in the last few years, there's been lots and lots of outbreaks of norovirus, and it can come through food poisoning, um, contamination as the people are cooking it, or the, the classic is through um, oysters that have been from areas where there's faeces going into the sea, and they just filter it out and hang on to it until you eat it. And what you're saying is that that accounts for a proportion of the ones we know about, but there are a lot of unknowns in there. You found two new ones. How? Poo is basically DNA soup. So we filtered down to the level where we'd actually just get viruses, and then we concentrated them down by spinning them really hard. And then in that, we then popped open the virus shells and pulled out the nucleic acid and amplified that up and then tried to work out what they were. It's probably about 30 or 40 years since someone last discovered a new virus that causes gastroenteritis. Uh, why has it taken so long? It's really hard. I mean, if you don't know what you're looking for, to be able to pull out uh, the genetic information from a soup of DNA and RNA that comes from plants and, and, and animals and, and the gut bacteria, it's, it's very difficult. So it's taken this amount of time for the molecular techniques in the lab to be able to get to the point where it's actually possible. What proportion of the cases of the two new ones you've discovered? Well, the two new ones we've discovered, um, the, the most important one is the uh, human bocavirus number two, and that's about 17%, um, maybe 10 to 17%, depending on the year. Um, the other one is human bocavirus number three, and uh, that one we don't know. That's about 3%, but it's also present a lot of the time in children that don't have gastro, so we haven't actually formed a link there. So what else is lurking out there then? Quite a lot, because even when we found this virus and we went back and analysed our study, um, we, we found it at 17% in one particular year. But even then, it's still only accounting for about 10% of the 30% that was missing. So there could it be at least three or four, maybe even ten other agents out there. And it's not just in Australia? No, this is all over the world. Other people have now found uh, the human bocavirus in Pakistan and um, in the UK and uh, and America. So now you, you know this, are we in a position to do anything about it? Um, at the moment, no, but we've been working on a way of um, making the coat from the virus and um, hopefully we'll be able to, in the future, be able to use that as a vaccine. There's a related virus in, in dogs that they use exactly that thing to um, uh, protect the dogs against a, a canine parvovirus. So now you've got the, the genetic sequence, what you're saying is you can borrow bits of the, the surface of the virus to make it into a vaccine. Yes, well, these, these viruses are actually quite clever because the, the proteins, the molecules that make up the coat, uh, you don't actually need the rest of the virus there. If you just take that out and put it in a system where you can get large amounts of it made, they spontaneously form up to these little hexagons and um, generate virus particles. And so you get the whole effect of the virus particle when you do the vaccination rather than just a little bit of it. And they're not harmful? No, not as far as we're aware, no. The, 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 what's been going on in dogs has been perfectly acceptable, so who knows, maybe we'll be able to vaccinate against these. I mean, the rotavirus vaccine has been wonderfully protective here in Australia, so um, maybe we'll be able to knock this on the head too. Jane Arthur from the Institute of Veterinary and Medical Science explaining how she recently discovered the human bocaviruses 2 and 3. Back to the Wake Campus now, and my favourite aspect of Adelaide, winemaking. My name's Cassandra Collins, and I'm a University um, of Adelaide lecturer in viticulture. Is this the only place in the world where I can come and do a course in how to make a fine bottle of wine? Uh, no, it's not the only place, but it is one of the few. Uh, there's a few other places in Australia. There's Charles Sturt University and also... Um, small places like Curtin University and University of Melbourne that do offer aspects of um, viticulture and or winemaking. Still quite rare. What an amazing thing to do though, to come to university and drink, which is what most students aspire to do anyway, and you can make it part of the course. 
<laughs> That's true. Uh, there's also um, many other technical aspects, not just drinking, uh, but it is definitely one of the benefits of doing this type of course. Uh, we cover all things right from how to grow grapes and best manage them to produce high-quality fruit that then can be made into um, high-quality wines. And for some students, they then also go on um, to learn more about marketing and the business side of um, the wine industry as well. So we do cover all aspects of the industry, which is quite exciting. Who does that kind of course? It's a real mix of people. Uh, You'll get undergraduate students that um, have maybe come from winemaking families themselves and want to learn more about the science behind it and help them develop themselves in their future career in the wine industry and then and then you'll also get um, quite a few students that are a little bit older that have decided they want a career change and want to move into something like the wine industry and often there's um, a bit of romance and there's definitely a lot of creative energy that goes into the wine industry and it does attract those sorts of people so we get um, a wonderful mix of personalities and Uh, people from such different backgrounds it makes it a pleasure in terms of teaching because you get to meet these people and learn more about where they've come from so that's that's another benefit exam time must be fantastic presumably you sit down with what the students have made and you get to taste it yeah that's true (laughs) not always as pleasurable as you might think at the end of the day they're still learning they make a horrible wine you make them drink it so they can learn to do it better next time well to be honest they do get cases and cases of it so (laughs) yeah they are left drinking it at some level (laughs) but the the key thing is that um i mean this is a serious business this isn't it i mean it's a big business so how many students are you turning out every year into this industry okay um it depends on what they're majoring in but approximately 50 to 100 depending on their specialty um, and it does vary a little bit with the trends in the industry as in terms of popularity so um, yeah it does depend on that but on average between 50 to 100. It's a three-year course? Uh, enology or winemaking is currently a four-year degree uh, viticulture was a three-year degree, but as of next year, um, all students will be required to do four years. And what we've done is to integrate more of the um, grape-growing viticulture side of things with the winemaking, so students end up with a much more rounded degree, even though they can still major in one or the other. So, What about the fact that, because you mentioned some students come from winemaking families and that kind of thing, are you surprised by that, that a lot of these families don't think that they just know everything and they they still have something to learn or that they want to even embrace science and bring that into the art of winemaking and it it becomes a science rather than an art? Uh, I think it's... You know, it's it's also an opportunity for them to learn more firsthand in terms of um, the latest technologies, uh, also how to present and communicate information, which is only going to be valuable to them once they return back into the to the wine industry. So I guess there's lots of side benefits. It's also an exercise in networking, essentially, as well, because you've got this group of people that are all focused and passionate about the one industry, studying side by side. I mean, it's, ability, it's an opportunity for them to um, spur each other on and, and meet each other as well. So it's another advantage and I think another reason why uh, winemaking families would end up in this system as well. Do you uh, get invited to a lot of parties as a result? Presumably you know everybody across the, the Barossa now. You, you, must, you must get invites to a lot of these places and uh, be quite in demand. That's another wonderful thing about this industry is the support from the growers, from the winemakers, from the big companies in terms of our research, in terms of um, allowing our students to come and visit them, to give them their real-life, realistic perspective on what's happening in the industry, what's important to them. We're really lucky that they embrace that and allow us to be a big part of their worlds as well so it's kind of like one big family in a way and when i fly home later this week what should i put in my 40 kilos of luggage allowance throw away all my clothes and take home 40 kilos of what 
<laughs> Good question. Um, I think you should take a mixed dozen, actually. <laughs> At least there's too many ones to choose from. I had a beautiful example of Meshach from Grant Burge the other day. We were lucky enough to take the students out there and we had a wine tasting, so I'd highly recommend having some of that. Uh, in terms of white wine, um, I'm always a big fan of an older Eileen Hardy Chardonnay and also some of our smaller producers in the Adelaide Hills. They've got some fabulous Sauvignon Blancs and some Chardonnays that are worth checking out, so I would, I would definitely try and squeeze a few of those into the suitcase. And I'll be telling the nice people at Customs that it's all for personal consumption. Honest. That was Cassandra Collins. Distilling the best science. The Naked Scientists. This is The Naked Scientists, and this week I'm naked down under in Adelaide. Coming up, I'll be hearing how scientists have successfully made plants salt-tolerant so they'll grow on saline soils, and also how porridge can keep your intestines in tip-top shape. But first, Tim Sutton is grappling with the problem that some soils contain a bit too much boron. Boron is a naturally occurring soil, soil element that is um, naturally quite high in concentration in soils of marine origin, and that covers most of southern Australia. Uh, so in South Australia, for example, in our grain-growing regions, we think about 30% of our soils have levels of boron above about 15 milligrams per kilogram in the top 100 centimetres of soil, which is generally considered the threshold for boron toxicity. So when you grow a plant in a soil like that, what impact does it have on the plant itself? Is it directly toxic in some way? It is. The boron in the soil is, is virtually immediately taken up by the plant roots. It gets into the transpiration stream. It then accumulates in the leaves. Uh, once it gets to a certain threshold concentration in the leaves, it affects metabolic processes. The plant cells die. The leaves eventually die off, and you get a plant that's really struggling to survive with that amount of boron in its leaves. And the history of this is quite interesting Boron toxicity was really only discovered as a problem in southern Australia in the early 1980s. There was an association made between boron content in leaves and boron content in soil samples taken across sites in southern Australia. And so this started a whole process of traditional plant breeding at the Wake campus, uh, whereby one of the first steps was the screening for wild relatives of barley that were naturally highly tolerant to boron toxicity. And one of the most tolerant lines that was discovered in that early work was a line called Sahara. It's an Algerian land race, comes from uh, obviously West Africa, and it's highly boron tolerant. It grows very happily on uh, concentrations of boron in the soil that far exceed anything we see in an agronomic situation. You wouldn't grow them as a farmer because you wouldn't get a good crop out of them. And so your plan would be, of course, to identify strains like that what, and then cross those with high-yielding varieties so you get the best of both worlds, you get the yield, plus you get the ability to grow well on a soil that's got a lot of boron in it. That's correct, and that is the, that is the fundamental of, of modern plant breeding. So the line Sahara has been used extensively in breeding programs across southern Australia as a donor line for the tolerance to boron trait, and that has been, in, that has been introgressed into uh, more agronomic lines of barley using traditional breeding approaches. How do you know that you've got the boron-resistant trait into the progeny, into the, into the new uh, hybrid that you make by crossing the resistant form with the high-yielding variety? We can look at the progeny from those crosses and we can phenotypically assess them. Are they boron-tolerant or are they not? If they are, they obviously have the genes or genetic loci required for tolerance. Or we can use more modern techniques uh, utilising molecular markers where we can use a DNA tag we know is linked to the boron-tolerance trait of interest and we can screen progeny resulting from crosses for that molecular marker. So do you actually know then what genes are responsible for making plants grow well even when there is an overdose of boron in the soil? Have you got that gene that does that? Yes, we do. We, have, we know of at least four of the major genes in barley. That was identified through traditional mapping work uh, in the late 90s at this campus. We've since cloned about three of those, three of the four major transporters. So we're getting a good grip on the molecular basis for these tolerance traits in barley. So you say transporters, so these genes make some kind of pump that can move boron what, out, out of the plant. If it's in a, a soil where the boron's trying to come into the plant, it can get rid of it. 
That's correct. The main transporter located, located on chromosome 4 of barley is a, is a membrane efflux transporter, and its role in the plant is to pump boron out once it gets into the cell. And the net effect of that is that there's less accumulation in the leaves of the plant, the plants are happier, they don't suffer from toxicity. What about if you put that same plant on a soil that's now not got too much boron? Is it still happier? It depends which gene you're talking about. The major one on chromosome 4 is constitutively expressed, and what that means is that it's not induced by the presence of boron. It's on all the time, everywhere. The downside of that is that under conditions of low boron supply in the soil, these plants actually suffer from slight symptoms of boron deficiency. They're not getting enough boron into their leaves to be happy. And that's uh, something that we're working on trying to modify. That's a good example of why it's really important to, to clone these genes, identify the exact sequence of these genes. And once we know that, we can look at the regulatory elements upstream of these genes that control their expression. In other words, when and how much are these things e- expressed. And once we know these, these things, we can then start to modify them. One of the things we could try and do, and we are trying to do indeed, is to make this boron transporter uh, in- inducible to boron so that when it's not needed in the plant it's not expressed but when it is needed under conditions of high boron the gene comes on and you get the tolerance phenotype that you're looking for. It should be incredibly neat because the plant then just responds to the environment according to what it needs and you don't have to have more than one type of plant. If you were to look at the the impact of this technology presuming you're going to be successful what difference could it make to the yield that you'll get both here in Australia and perhaps to other countries around the world? The numbers that we think occur in, at least in southern Australia, we think are about 30% of our soils are affected by boron. That could equate to $250 million of annual production. But talking more globally, it's difficult to say because often these problems don't come in isolation. Often when you have a boron-toxic soil, that comes along with things like salinity, uh, aluminium toxicity, a whole range of problems that are difficult to, to isolate and single out. And it could, could have a big impact. And how close are you to having those crops ready to go? We're working, we're working very hard to, to get the material to a stage where it could be useful for, for farmers. In fact, we're in stage two or a second year now of, of a GM field trial in South Australia where we have GM material containing the boron tolerance gene from Sahara. So we're evaluating that material at the present in this growing season. So a potential solution on the way for the problem of too much of element number five. I was Tim Sutton. Well, back to wine now and something else that's a big problem. Bushfires, but not for the reason you might think. And thankfully, Kerry Wilkinson might have a solution. When the bushfire occurs or prescribed burning occurs in uh, close proximity to wine regions, there's the risk that that smoke might linger around and in some cases um, can be taken up by grapevines where where smoke exposure occurs for an extended period of time. And what we see is that that smoke translates to a a taint um, that can be detected in the wine in some cases. Well, so what there are chemicals, some kind of volatile agents in the smoke, presumably, that then adsorb or impregnate the the surface of the grapes, and this then gets carried over into the press? Some of these processes are are still under investigation, and we don't yet have all the answers, but it certainly seems to be that some of the components of smoke are being absorbed by grapevines and by by fruit, and that these are carrying over into the wine um, and can influence the the aroma and and, and sensory properties of of the finished product. Is the effect always negative? Is it always bad news for the wine if that happens? Uh, We don't see an apparent taint in in all wines where uh, vineyard smoke exposure has occurred, but where it's prolonged there is is a risk that we see some some smoky, um, burnt meat-type characters in a wine. And and in some wines, particularly a a delicate uh, Riesling, for example, um, this can be detrimental to to the quality. How much smoke do you actually need? So a bonfire in the vineyard... It's probably trivial, but a big bushfire is likely to be more dramatic. Um, That's true. The research is ongoing, um, so we haven't yet been able to say this is the minimum uh, duration of exposure that's required to translate into a a tainted wine. Where we have seen um, significant issues with smoke taint, it's generally a case of a large fire that's ongoing for a number of days or even weeks um, and where that smoke hangs around for a considerable length of time. And are all grape varieties equivalently susceptible to this or are some 
going to see their flavours impacted more than others? That's actually the the focus of a a current research project. We're actually looking at conducting a varietal trial to to see if there are any physiological characteristics of certain varieties that make them more or less susceptible. So the idea is that that some of the characteristics of certain grapevines, for example, their their leaf area or their bunch size, might influence the the levels of of smoke that are being absorbed um, in the field. And so hopefully what we can do is identify varieties that are uh, less susceptible to the uptake that might be more appropriate uh, for growing in, in regions where, where you know, there's, there's, they're prone to smoke. Is there anything you can do about it once it's actually happened? Because in Victoria, I think last year where there were some fires, they had to throw away a huge amount of wine. Yeah, the Australian wine industry, particularly in, in Victoria, which, which has had a few, uh, a few incidences in recent years, um, they're really concerned with their brand. And so in many cases, wineries aren't prepared to, to risk their reputation by, by putting out a product that, that they don't believe is up to the, their standards of, of quality. We've been conducting some research looking at a, a technique that involves reverse osmosis and solid phase adsorption, which might have the capacity. It's, it certainly looks promising to try to uh, overcome the issues of, of smoke taint and remove that, that taint. So would you then take the product and try to extract just the molecules that are making that smoky taste? Or do you go to the grapes and, and do something to them? At this stage, the amelioration techniques are being applied to wine, and that's because uh, some research has recently identified that um, some of these smoke compounds are being uh, conjugated by the grapevine, so they're present in more complicated forms than what we're able to detect. And what we've shown is that during winemaking, these more complicated molecules are being broken down to release the compounds contributing smoke, smoky-type aromas. So it's better for us to be treating the wine as a finished product to try to remove the, the, the offensive compounds rather than treating the grapes where, or the grape juice where we're, we're actually not able to target those, those molecules more specifically. There must be hundreds if not thousands of different flavourants in an individual wine. So how do you know what's smoke and how do you know what's actually good, honest grape flavour? That's true, and even some of the compounds that that are present in smoke are are natural components of of grapes as well. So that's part of the the complication of of, uh, determining a method that we can use for for trying to remove smoke taint is is coming up with um, techniques that... Um, I guess act more specifically on the on the offensive molecules and try not to, to have so much of an impact on the desirable compounds. So how do you actually do that? Are you growing grapes and then wafting smoke over them so you can then see how much they take up or something? Uh, we actually are. Um, we're conducting a, a number of, of field trials where we um, build purpose uh, purpose-built smoke tents around our around our grapevines, and we then generate smoke and, and put the smoke inside these these tents for a specified period of time. And we come back and collect grapes at different times afterwards, or harvest the grapes when once they're mature to make wine out of them to conduct a number of chemical and sensory analyses at a later date. And have you got some candidate compounds that you know translate into these nasty aromas that you think you can now remove? There are two marker compounds that are currently being used, guaiacol and 4-methylguaiacol, and these are are reasonably reliable indicators when their levels are are higher in in smoke-affected grapes and smoke-affected wines. It tends to correlate with with higher levels of um, perceived smoky characters. The complication is that these compounds are also derived from um, barrel maturation, so when a wine is matured in a barrel, you'll see these compounds as well. So we know that they're not solely responsible and, and on ongoing research is trying to identify some of the other compounds that are responsible. And the removal process, how effective actually is that and does it leave the wine fairly otherwise untainted then? Uh, the project that we ran last year we took a smoke tainted pinot and it had quite an, an apparent um, smoky character uh, and we were able to to reduce the levels of guaiacol from 12 micrograms per litre down to 5 micrograms per litre and perhaps most importantly was the, the sensory results we got from this. And our, and our panel could um, readily distinguish between the wine before and after treatment. But not only that, there was an improved acceptability of the wine after treatment. So it had less intense smoky type characters and more intense fruit characters. There is the potential that we're also removing desirable flavour compounds. You know, we don't 
we don't deny that. Um, but it does seem to be a process that, that at least gives winemakers some hope where they you know, don't have too many other options available to them. So there might be some hope for my home brewing yet then. Bit of a reverse osmosis to remove a few undesirable flavours and that should leave behind some pleasant tasting water. That was Kerry Wilkinson from the University of Adelaide. Back to Mark Tester now and how he's helping to solve a major problem that farmers are facing now and in the future. Increasing soil salinity. Salt doesn't give plants high blood pressure but it does lead to an early death. The main application for my research is to uh, improve crop production around the world. We all know we need more food and we're needing to produce more food in the face of a changing climate. And saline soils are one of the major limitations of crop productivity. Perhaps a third of the world's food is grown using irrigated um, conditions. And We all know water is becoming a a scarcer resource and the quality of the water is going down. And uh, it's a problem already and perhaps more importantly, it's going to be an increasing problem. It's estimated a fifth of the world's irrigated land is uh, significantly affected by salinity and it's getting worse. Is this because when we consistently put water out of rivers and things on land and that water may contain a small amount of salt... As that gets consumed by the plants or or by evaporation, the salt is left behind so the soil over time progressively deteriorates. Yes, that's exactly right, Chris. And also we put water on, you tend to put too much water on and it seeps back down into the waterway from which you pumped the water and it's going through soil which is uh, often has a small number of salts so you also get a recirculation of salt building up and building up over time. And what does that do to the plants? Why won't they grow on salty soil? Yeah, there's a few reasons. Um, the, the main one is that the plants try to keep the salt out. In fact, plants are pretty good at keeping most of the salt out, but because there's so much there um, beating at the door of the plant's roots, the plants struggle to uh, keep it all out. And over time, the salt accumulates up in the shoot and leads to premature ageing of the leaves and so the plant which has put all that energy into growing all those leaves loses them they die before the plant's got its money's worth out of those leaves and so you get the plant being ground down because of this premature death of of its leaves just due to the simple build-up of the salt so presumably i mean one way to tackle this is to first of all start to look for plants that do grow quite well on salty or salt-contaminated soils and then ask how they deal with it? Yes, there's a couple of ways. Uh, You've just described what we would call a a forward genetic approach, a genetic approach where we look for natural variation and then understand the the molecular basis, you know, what molecules, what genes are different in the plants which have got those differences in salinity. And we certainly do that. The other approach is to try to understand the processes, the mechanisms that plants are employing to try to keep the salt out of the shoots and then see if you can uh, manipulate those processes um, using uh, genetic modification. And is that what you've done? Yes. The reality is you actually do a bit of both and you combine the two techniques and, uh, and they meet in the middle, which is actually the way we did it. There are um, genes that encode proteins that transport sodium. And one of these genes allows the sodium to move into cells. And what it was doing, it was actually doing it in the cells that were immediately around the pipes, they're called xylem vessels, that move the water from the roots to the shoots. So the plant tries to keep the sodium out, but then some sodium eventually reaches these pipes that are in the centre of the roots, taking the water to the shoot. And it's like a last-ditch rescue process by the plants where they say, look, that sodium's in those pipes, we can't let it get to the shoot or we're in real trouble. And so it lets the sodium back into the cells that are immediately surrounding the pipes. And that slows, in some cases stops, the sodium actually reaching the shoots. And what we did was develop techniques which allowed us to increase the levels of expression of that gene immediately around those cells that are buried right in the heart of the root to increase this retrieval of sodium out of the water on its way up to the shoot. And that's made the plant salt tolerant. 
So how did you do that rather clever trick of making that gene only get turned on in those cells around the xylem vessels? Because that's the, the breakthrough step, isn't it, really? Yes, it is. Um, there's different ways you can do this. One is to try to discover little bits of DNA which will activate genes in specific parts of the plant. So that's, that's one way you can do it, a very direct way. In the meantime, we were using a model plant. Uh, it's called Arabidopsis. It's a silly little weed, but you can do lots of really nice molecular genetics with it. And what we did was throw into the genome of this little uh, plant, this little weed, um, a little bit of DNA, which will allow us to turn on genes. But we threw it on and random in the, in the genome, made thousands of these plants, and then looked at the plants to find ones which had the right pattern of expression. So the initial generation of the plants was random, and then we looked to find plants which had, by fluke, this bit of DNA landing in a part of the genome that would activate that gene only in the inner half of the root. Big question though, Mark, must be, of course, um, it's one thing to do this in thalecress, the, the plant scientist fruit fly, but we don't eat that. So what about things that we do eat? Could you put this same genetic combination into rice, into barley, wheat and so on, the kinds of things we do rely on for food staples? Absolutely, Chris. We have done this um, in rice and the results are looking very promising. Uh, we look like we've uh, worked out how to reduce the sodium constant. Well, we have reduced the sodium concentration in the shoots of rice and uh, we're in the process of testing the effect of that on yield. The first experiments did improve yield, but we're just wanting to, again, be fairly conservative rather than just shooting off the results rapidly but it's looking very promising. To turn the genes on in wheat and barley, um, maize, it's actually quite difficult because these molecular genetic tricks that we're able to use on Arabidopsis, uh, we just simply can't do. We're technically not able to do it in wheat and barley. So what we're doing now is having a program to discover the promoters that would help us turn this on. So going back to a very direct but slower way of manipulating expression in, in wheat and barley. We actually have transgenic plants in the glasshouse at the moment for wheat and barley, and we're limited by bulking up the seed, and we're just at that stage at the moment. So keep your fingers crossed for us, and hopefully in a year's time we'll be able to say if we've done it in, in, in the other crops as well. What about safety, though? Because we're already worried about rice because of things like arsenic. Could fiddling around with the way the plant handles certain salts like this have implications for the accumulation in the plant of other things that are not good for us, as well as giving us food, we'll end up eating something we shouldn't? Yes, that's a good question. Unfortunately, we have analytical technologies here um, in Adelaide to measure uh, a large number of different elements, and we have checked that. And it's quite extraordinary. This transporter is very specific for transporting sodium and it's only one other element that we've measured has an altered um, has, has differences in its accumulation. That's potassium, which is uh, really not going to affect the nutrition of the plants very much at all. We generally only eat the grain, and uh, and the grains don't get affected at all, even their sodium. Mark Tester with the way to make plants grow better on salty soil. From protons to photons and gluons to muons, the Naked Scientists. Science that's fundamentally more fun. This is the Naked Scientists down under in Adelaide, Australia, with me, Chris Smith. To human health now and the study of plant polysaccharides. These are the giant molecules that plants make by linking sugars together to form their cell walls. It turns out that these polysaccharides make a major contribution to keeping our intestines in tip-top shape. Jeff Fincher. We work on cereals and there's the potential to Im improve the, um, the, the value of cereals for human health. And uh, if we can understand how these uh, polysaccharides are synthesised, then we can look for natural variation in the uh, levels of their synthesis so that we can uh, hand on some benefits of natural variation to human health or we can manipulate them. You say they're good for human health, but in what way? How are they affecting our health? 
All right. So, um, as I mentioned, um, cell walls over the years have been uh, not terribly uh, popular. You know, students' eyes glaze over when you start talking about the structure of these polysaccharides. And um, uh, but just in recent years, it's been discovered that they uh, they really have a, a major beneficial effect on human health in all sorts of different areas. So. Um, these polysaccharides are very long molecules, uh, lots of sugar residues joined together. They usually have an asymmetric uh, configure, conformation, which means they're much longer than they are wide, and that means they form solutions of high viscosity. They're thick in solution. So you feed them to a human, and uh, the, there's no enzymes to digest them in the small intestine, and they increase, increase the viscosity of the contents of the small intestine. This slows down the rate of uh, diffusion of enzymes and breakdown products of things that we can digest, like starch and protein, and it means that there's a much slower release of, uh, say, glucose from uh, glucose-containing polymers, uh, slower release generally of food. And so this is... Um, uh, th- this uh, has a, a lot of uh, beneficial effects in terms of um, uh, reducing glycemic index and this is a benefit to people with type 2 diabetes. When they get down into the large intestine, down there they, um, uh, they're fermented to uh, various short-chain fatty acids and some of these are believed to have um, anti, um, anti-cancer effects and so they reduce the risk of colorectal cancer. And beyond that... There's a uh, health claim which is allowed in the US that uh, these polysaccharides reduce serum cholesterol levels. So if we reduce the risk of diabetes, uh, cardiovascular disease and colorectal cancers, these things have got to be good. (laughs) It certainly sounds like it, given that you've listed the things that probably kill more people than, than anything else. What about the fact that we're now beginning to get very interested in the bacteria that live in our intestines as well. And we know that they play a huge role in health and disease. Do these things also impact on the bacteria as well? So we, we at the moment have a um, project with the CSIRO Food Futures flagship and uh, this is one of the objectives, of the major objectives of this project. We have uh, people within CSIRO who have microarray um, analyses um, where they can quantitate the level of different bacteria in our um, large intestine and they can broadly classify them into good bacteria and bad bacteria in terms of human health. And so what we can do now is we can take these polysaccharides with different structures and we can do this either in vitro or in pigs and and we can see what effects these polysaccharides have on on the dynamics of these bacterial populations and in our first um, pig trial that we finished last year we should we um, added uh, we supplemented the diet with one of these uh, cell wall polysaccharides we got a dramatic reduction in DNA damage in colonocytes which line the colon and we got a dramatic shift to beneficial bacteria in the large intestine which is very encouraging are there any plants that make more of the right sort of these things is that what you're trying to find so we can then advise people what the best plants are or what would what would constitute the best diet I think that um, there, there are polysaccharides in all plants with the same sort of physico-chemical properties. You know, they form these highly viscous solutions and they have the potential uh, to do this, the sort of things that I've mentioned. But I guess the focus has been on the polysaccharides in cereals because they're the main source of, of food for most human societies. And so we're focusing on those and we certainly believe and we can see, for example, if you have different fine structures of these polysaccharides, you get different solubility. And the more soluble they are, the, the, uh, and the more soluble dietary fibre you have, apparently the, the uh, greater are the benefits. So certainly we're looking at the effect of fine structure on physicochemical properties and then on human health benefits. Do you think then in the future, if you can identify what the molecules are that are best for us, that you'll be able to put them in a pill? Because there are some people, I think there was a stat published in the UK the other day, more than a million people do not eat any fruit or vegetables yeah. ever and I'm yeah. sure it's the same here in Australia yeah. yeah it is the same it'd be a mighty big pill I'd have to say that 
Because <laughs> you really do need, um, you know, in terms of volume, you need quite a lot of this um, uh, this material. But this is, but it's a good point because uh, we have to come up with something which is beneficial to the human health, to human health, uh, which humans don't have to eat a kilogram of a day. You know, it has to be uh, concentrated enough in a, um, a, a, a serve of food which is uh, reasonable to expect people to eat. So can I ask you to suggest what I should have in my five a day on my plate in order to get the best bang for my buck in my, not just my colon, but my intestine in, in total? <laughs> well, I think the, um, uh, the, these polysaccharides in cereal grains, the, probably the best ones that are naturally occurring uh, are in oats and barley. Now, oats you can have, so eat up your porridge and uh, you'll do really well in terms of bowel health. Uh, in Barley is also a rich source, but there's not, it's not quite as attractive as a, as a human food. And what we're trying to do is increase the solubility and the amount of these polysaccharides in wheat so that uh, people can get them through wheat and eventually rice as well. So eat your greens, or you can't have anything from the sweet trolley. That was Jeff Fincher. He's the Professor of Plant Sciences at the University of Adelaide, and he's also Director of the Wake Campus. Now here's a question. What makes a grape ideal for turning into wine? Steve Tymon. Well, what we've discovered in the berries of grapevines is that later in development, as they're ripening, um, they undergo a process of cell death. Now, this hasn't been recognised previously. It occurs fairly late in ripening, but still before harvest. Now, we see this through uh, using dyes that detect living and dead cells and uh, what was quite extraordinary was the fact that we see big differences between different varieties. So in wine grapes we see this progressive cell death, uh, which gets worse and worse until harvest, so only a small proportion of the, the actual berry is still living, whereas in table grape varieties we don't see that happen at all. In fact, you can go to a supermarket and buy some uh, some grapes, the actual berries, and... Uh, do the uh, tests on these and generally you'll see that they're all still living so they're nice and crisp and turgid in the mouth and they taste nice and fresh whereas a, a grape berry if you do that they, they feel like just a bag of sugar sugary fluid and there's no turgidity or crispness about them it's it's very likely that they were selected for that very reason looking at the picture you've got here of precisely this effect can you just talk talk me through what what that picture is actually showing okay well, what we've got on the screen is a, a transverse section of a berry stained with a, a dye that detects living cells. And the table grape variety, which is Thompson seedless, shows that most of the cells are living through the berry, whereas the wine grape variety that you're looking at is Chardonnay. It's a popular wine variety across the world, a popular Bordeaux style as well. And you can see that there, there are just a few cells living around the periphery of the berry, and this is associated with the vasculature. But the large juice cells, which make up most of the, the volume of the berry, are actually dead or dying. So their membranes have disintegrated and released the contents, the various compartments in the cell that is mixed, and it's very likely that this has actually influenced the biochemistry as well as the, the general structure and shape of the berry. So presumably an experienced winemaker will basically be doing with their tongue what your clever dye is doing here on the screen, yeah. they'll be able to tell when a grape has reached that appropriate level of cell death for all the flavours to be coming out, so that's an ideal time to make wine. Yes, that's, that's probably correct. We're testing that at the moment using berry sensory analysis to see if it correlates with the onset of cell death, but winemakers often describe this uh, engustment of flavour where there's a sudden increase in the, the, the varietal flavours that uh, one detects with, say, Riesling, Viognier, and these, these, this engustment of flavour sometimes occurs very rapidly. So it could well be associated with the uh, onset of cell death, but we haven't actually proven that yet. We've just shown that this cell death stage occurs late in ripening and before harvest. So it, it certainly is happening, and it is possible that the winemakers and viticulturists are detecting it, but we don't know that for sure yet. Could you make that happen at different stages of ripening? in a grape in order to make it juiceable, if you like, yeah. and therefore alter subtly the characteristic of the wine you could make. Yeah. Well, we're, we're interested in it for that reason, but also um, 
there's a correlation between the onset of cell death in the berry and water loss from the berry. So in a warm climate such as we have in Australia, um, you get a lot of eva- you can get a lot of water evaporating from a berry, and it it's correlated with um, the onset of this cell death. So the more cell death that occurs in the berry, the more weight loss occurs. And we see this generally across all the wine grape varieties. And those that have more cell death tend to be more susceptible to weight loss. In fact, this can be so much so that in the variety Shiraz, um, they can lose up to 30% of the the maximum weight of the berry before harvest, which to the growers is a lot of yield loss. Um, It's not necessarily a bad thing for the winemakers because you get more sugar. If water evaporates from the berry, that concentrates the sugar. Um, but we, we we need to understand why that happens in some varieties more than it does in others because uh, in a warmer, drier climate, it's likely that this will be exacerbated. So we're interested in on a, from a, a climate point of view. But uh, as you say, if um, we can make this happen earlier or even not allow it to happen, we don't know what would happen if uh, it occurred to a lesser extent in terms of flavour development. Uh, or to a greater extent, or if it occurred earlier, with, whether that would um, be useful or not, I don't know. But maybe if you could trigger that by mm. spraying the plant with something, so yeah. then all the plants, all the grapes in register, yeah. all kill them themselves internally, yeah. so then you minimise the water loss, maximise yeah. the flavour, and you know exactly when you want to pick them. Yeah. Well, one of the issues that we have, actually, is that sugar concentrations in berries has been increasing over the decades, and one can... Uh, claim that this is an impact of climate change. So, for example, red grape varieties in Australia have increased, when we make wine from them, the alcohol content has increased by about 1% per decade, which uh, you know has health implications and also uh, flavour implications because it's harder to balance a, a hot alcoholic wine with other flavours. So we're actually interested in Australia in reducing the alcohol content, and to reduce the alcohol content, we have to reduce the sugar content in the berry. Um, so this um, onset of cell death and water loss has a direct impact on the sugar because if water is lost from the berry, the sugar concentration increases. If we can get this process to occur earlier in sugar ripeness, that should result in less water loss at harvest and potentially lower sugar concentrations in the berry. Who'd have thought that grapes killing themselves at the right time is the secret to a fine vintage? That was Adelaide University's Steve Tymon. Finally this week, from grape health to good health, and Diana O'Carroll's raising a glass, hopefully, of wine at the right temperature. This week's question will be of interest to all those wine lovers out there. Uh, hello, I'm Karina from Quito, Ecuador, and my question is, white, white wine is served chilled and red wine is served at room temperature. Why is it that serving temperatures differ for red and white wine? My name is Marjorie King, and I've been a sensory research technician with Agriculture Canada for 28 years. I'm retired now. First of all, red and white wines have different chemical compositions that influence their sensory perception and their sensory traits. The aromatic white wines, and these are things like Chenin Blanc, Gewürztraminer, some of the Rieslings, you serve them the coolest so it would be about 8 degrees centigrade. They have a relatively higher proportion of aldehydes and esters and terpenes that fill up the headspace of the glass at a lower temperature. So they will project their fruitiness, which is a big part of the appreciation of those wines, at a much lower temperature. The cooler temperature accentuates a bit of the acid, and so it creates a crisper, fresher kind of impression of the wine. If you do a Chardonnay-type wine or a wine in that style that is oaked, it can be served at a slightly higher temperature, so maybe 10 degrees C, maybe 11 degrees C. And the red wines, we have the phenolic compounds in the red wines, so with the the polyphenols and the tannins contribute to the structure and the mouthfeel, and that's very much linked to the appreciation and the good quality red wine. These components are better tasted at a slightly higher temperature. So if you chill a red wine, it's not just that the flavor components don't come out into the headspace as well, but the tannins and the polyphenols feel much more astringent and harsher in the mouth, and the acid is accentuated as well. 
if you serve a red wine that's really warm, what you get then is the alcohol starts to dominate the headspace in the glass and you get the perception of an alcoholic wine and you don't appreciate all the fruity components that are in the wine. So if we serve those at about 19 degrees C, you get a much more pleasant overall balanced wine. So chilling temperatures should really differ according to the grape variety the wine was made with. Some white wines are acidic, and so chilling will balance that out with a crisper fruitiness, whereas the tannins and reds can be brought out at a slightly warmer temperature. But as our expert says, if you prefer wine lollies, then why not? A little wine may be good for your health, but what about radiation? My name is Steve from Little Walden, and my question is, how much radiation are you exposed to during a medical x-ray? How does that compare to the dosage levels radiation workers are allowed to receive? So how much does a medical x-ray dose compare to all those guidelines? Help us answer this question of the week. You can email us, chris at thenakedscientist.com, or you can write your answers on the forum. And that has a special dedicated website. That's thenakedscientist.com forward slash forum. Diana O'Carroll. That's all we've got time for. Do join us next week when we'll be back in Blighty. In the meantime, if you'd like to get in touch, you can drop us an email to chris at thenakedscientist.com. Have a great week. Thank you for listening and goodbye. The Naked Scientists comes to you from Cambridge University and is supported by the Wellcome Trust, the EPSRC and UK Fast. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientist.com. 